of three, a series of three. So we're gonna have a presentation this morning on enhancing meaning in later life. And next Wednesday morning, I'm gonna be giving a talk on providing mental health services to older adults with cognitive impairment. And then in the week after that, I'll be giving a talk on working with older adults with psychotic disorders. So they're all gonna be kind of focusing on mental health services, particularly counseling and psychotherapy, as well as related um, kinds of mental health interventions. And just a little bit about me. I, um, I've been a licensed psychologist 30 years, and I've been working with older adults probably for 40 years. Um, and I've been working for the last, for most of that time, really the last 29 years at Heritage Clinic. So Heritage Clinic is an older adult mental health clinic um, and we have offices in Lancaster, Pasadena, down mid-city downtown LA, and Long Beach, as well as we have a lot of other sites in older adult residential buildings and daycare, adult daycare centers. So we have focused primarily on older adults, although we also serve adults of all ages um, a, a little bit. The topic today, enhancing meaning in later life. I just thought I'd say a little bit about why I propose that we talk about this topic. I have found in the last, well, working at Heritage Clinic, working with older adults, particularly working with older adults who are, I'd say under-resourced, that are low income, that have serious mental illness, they often have very few resources in life. And I have found that the psychotherapists that I have been supervising over the years sometimes feel a little bit at a loss of how to help somebody who isn't really able to engage in cognitive behavioral therapy or isn't really able to engage in developing a, a hearty social network. That it can be hard sometimes, especially as older adults get medical illnesses and are um, medically compromised and can't engage in a lot of activity, we have to often turn our therapeutic interventions towards something that's in the inner life, in the internal life of a person. And it's not as much in the external life of the person. So this is where this talk kind of developed. Um, what we're gonna talk about this morning, hopefully we'll have time to at least touch on all of these. Um, I wanna talk about the difficulty of finding meaning amidst late life losses. I wanna talk about Viktor Frankl and his approach to attitudes, Eric Erickson and life review, existential issues and grappling with death and dying. Um, spirituality and or religious life, mindfulness, nature, creativity, relationships, legacy, wisdom. These are just sort of some of the things we're going to touch on today. Um, your learning objectives. I hope you'll learn at least two ways of trying to help an older adult develop meaning. 
um, at least two ways to try to think of, or to think about developing a opening a conversation with clients about existential or spiritual issues and um, some ways in which meaning may develop that are different in different cultures. So those are some, some of my objectives, not all of them. Um, yeah, okay, I've already kind of gone over that. So for the, today and the next three weeks. Um, so as I say, later life's losses can make it harder to find meaning. So as people age, often they get physically more challenged. It's, more, it's harder to engage in past meaningful pursuits. Um, cognitively also, oh, as older adults age, their cognition can decrease, whether it's due to dementia or normal aging. And so that also can make it harder to engage in some of the things they used to enjoy. Um, so it also can be having decreased physical and mental energy and focus can also make it harder to develop new meaningful activities and roles. It's not impossible. It can be done for sure, but it makes it harder. Um, and this can make it harder to find hope. And I think I have found, especially supervising people who tend to be younger as clinicians, um, working with older people, it can sometimes be hard for the younger person to kind of think of, well, what can bring meaning to an older person when we, you know, when, when the younger person hasn't had the experience of, of being older at this point. And, that, and it can, it can um, sort of decrease the hope in the service provider, which makes it hard to provide services if we, if we don't have hope. One of you in the chat mentioned repetition, and uh, sometimes it takes a lot of repetition to um, work, it takes a lot of patience, including repetition sometimes when working with older adults. Um, to also, I know that many of our graduate schools teach us mental health interventions that require a lot of physical abilities interpersonal relationships or cognitive focus and energy, such as cognitive behavioral therapy, behavioral activation, increasing socialization. And a lot of times our clients, our older adult clients, particularly those that have had long-term mental illness and or long-term low income, they may be very sparse in their physical abilities, cognitive abilities, interpersonal relationships. So finding other ways to help people improve their sense of um, kind of inner sense of hope and meaning. It, it's not, it, sometimes it seems like an intervention of last resort. Well, we can't do anything else. So we have to really turn inward. I actually don't think that is right. I think we can turn inward even if we have plenty of physical and cognitive ability but we're not forced to. Um, so how can we help our clients improve their mental health and quality of life through the development of altered perspectives, existential meaning, wisdom, integrity, spirituality? So these are things that are, I believe are available 
to any human being, including people with cognitive impairment and or serious medical and mental health problems. So I'm gonna start by talking about Viktor Frankl. Um, I'm guessing many of you have heard of Viktor Frankl and many of you have read Man's Search for Meaning, but I imagine also many of you haven't. Um, but he was a psychiatrist when he was a, a boy. He, um, I think it was Poland. He grew up in Poland and he's Jewish. And he and his family were taken to um, the, a concentration camp and during World War II. And um, he survived the concentration camp and he developed, while there, he, he developed a real sense of how to make meaning out of uh, really, really, really very awful circumstances. So in, in this book, Man's Search for Meaning, he writes that the ways of finding meaning include creating a work or doing a deed. And that is what I'd say much of earlier adulthood is about, working, doing things, accomplishing things. And that's how you know a lot of people get meaning is out of their work or their family. Um, a second way of getting meaning, he said, is experiencing something or encountering some, someone. So being, experiencing the world, experiencing life. And then a third way of developing meaning, he says, is even if we are helpless victims of a hopeless situation, facing a fate that cannot be changed, we may rise above ourselves, grow beyond ourselves, and by so doing, change ourselves. So you, know, you think of him in a concentration camp, or you think of some of our clients who really have had very traumatic lives, very difficult situations, and it, it seems like have become victimized Nonetheless, and, and maybe victimized by medical illnesses that are um, intractable and not treat very well treatable, we can help them to change their attitudes. So meaning is mentioned in a lot of different psychotherapeutic approaches, a lot of different philosophy. Robert Niemeyer uh, writes a lot about grief and grief work, and he counsels when we help bereaved clients that we can help them develop new and internalized sense of newly constructed meaning. So after a loss, how we make meaning out of loss. Marty Horowitz writes a lot about trauma and PTSD. And he talks about helping clients create new meaning in a world which allowed the trauma to occur. So for someone that has been traumatized and just can't, feels like life is meaningless, we can help them see new meaning in a world that is different than what they had expected. So um, here's just an example um, of a client. Actually, it's very close to a client that I, I have had an 80 year old woman in therapy for panic attacks and generalized anxiety disorder. 
Um, she was widowed, having no children, no siblings, so very, very lonely. Um, she has regrets, you know, a lot of times when older adult people get to later life, especially mental and, and in under mental health clients. I don't know if this is true across the board uh, in a non-mental health population, but among many, many of our clients, there are people that have a lot of regrets. She had regrets about not having a more loving marriage, not having children, um, feeling lonely and feeling like her life has not amounted to much. So one of the approaches we're gonna talk about this morning is life review and reminiscence. And the therapist helped her review her past losses, review and process feelings about regrets and the factors that led to the relationship patterns and helped her gain more of an understanding and acceptance that this is what her life led her to not by fault of her, any fault of her own, but because of circumstances, how she grew up led to the kinds of relationships she had, the body she had led her to having no children, the family she was given led her to have no siblings. And so she came to more of an acceptance and understanding and therapy helped her to notice how she had overcome early disappointments and realized her strengths. So her disappointment and anxiety decreased and she was more able to appreciate what she has currently in her life. So that's just an example. So maybe we could take a moment to just, again, use the chat box, but write like, what are, um, I'm gonna rephrase this question here. What are some of the ways you think you could help an older adult who's in really tight circumstances like I'm talking about, a lot of losses. What are some of the ways you think you might want to try to help her or him develop meaning? We have a comment, <clears throat> excuse me. Okay. Um, finding new interests or hobbies. Uh-huh, yeah. Um, pick up something to take care of and feel needed, something simple. Mm -hmm. to grow through meaning of the losses, teach others what they have learned, focusing yeah. on strengths and abilities that still remain with them, finding yeah. social gatherings, uh, find a way to pass on knowledge and experiences mm -hmm. to the uh -huh. next generation. Yep, yep. Yeah, yeah, those are great. Those are really great. Um, we have some more, finding legacy and establish relationships, stay connected with communities, faith, um, thinking yeah. about their strengths, understanding themselves yeah. more, yeah. Um, whatever limitations, physical, otherwise, help them find some way or sense of contributing to the well-being of another, attending yeah. church or spiritual activities. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's great. Um, those are several of the things we'll talk about and, and um, we can kind of try to incorporate a lot of things you just all said. Thank you so much. So um, yeah, I already went over the outline, so I'm gonna keep going. Okay, so Eric Erickson, um, I imagine many of you, especially those of you that have um, been taken Psych, psych 101 or grad school in, in mental health field um, have heard about Eric Erickson. So he was a psychoanalyst um, and he, he's, 
especially famous for presenting these developmental phases in life. Um, he came after Freud and after Jung, who already talked about some of the development of early childhood, but he extended the idea of developmental phases further into all, all of life, all the way through into older adulthood. And he first got famous really for focusing on adolescence and the identity crisis of adolescence. So, um, People hadn't really written that much about adolescence so much before him. And then as he aged, he got to be especially interested in the in the eight, what he called the eighth stage of life of older adulthood and talked about life, um, the natural process of life review. So for what's you know relevant to us more than about, adolescence here on this talk, but is about the eighth stage of life. And he said, so in each stage, in each of these eight stages of life, he notes a psychosocial crisis where the individual is struggling between kind of opposites. So like the infant is expected to learn trust or in certain circumstances, mistrust. Um, the adolescent is trying to develop an identity, an ego identity, and struggles with role confusion. So in the eighth stage, the struggle is between integrity and despair. And he claims that the approach of death stimulates review of life to prepare for death. So he, he hypothesizes that it's a it's a um, universal characteristic of when a person realizes that death is coming, whenever that might be, that that stimulates a person to review their life and to either gain integrity or despair or, or not, it's not an either or, but you know, to some degree to feel a sense of personal internal integrity or despair. And, you know, many of our clients are more on the side of despair than on integrity. And I think this is, one of you in the chat earlier said self-understanding. And this is, um, this process, if it all goes really, really well, if it's very um, successful, will lead to a sense of, of self-understanding, integrity, and acceptance. Of course, you know, human development is never perfect. And with people that have had hard, hard lives, it can tend to go in more the difficult direction. Um, he wrote this little book, The Life Cycle Completed, about the eighth stage, along with his wife. And he says, the primary task in old age is to come to an acceptance of one's one and only life cycle as something that had to be and that by necessity permitted no substitutions. So in the, the client situation I described a few minutes ago, the 80 year old woman, part of the point of doing a life review, I thought it with her was to help her to see that this is the life she was given she couldn't have a different life. She was born to the parents she was born to. They treated her the way they did as she grew up. 
she had um, the, the body that she was, you know, given. And then the life kind of unfolded from there and trying to help her come to an acceptance that this is the life she lived and what, what has she gained from it and what does she mourn for it from it. So I was for, able to hear Eric Erickson talk, give a talk towards the end of his life. And he talked about a weaving. And I just thought I'd show this little picture of a weaving. But the idea was that in the eighth stage, you're weaving together or you're helping your client weave together all of these eight stages, all of the sides of the psychosocial crises into a, 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 a weaving. Um, actually, this picture is not quite so beautiful, but it could be beautiful, I suppose. I, 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 the idea of, that your life, a client's life is a beautiful weaving of the, the good and the bad, the, the losses and the strengths, the um, things that happened the way you wanted them to, the things that didn't. And that that is the process of life review. So this eighth stage involves a consolidation of one's understanding of the life one has lived to be achieved through the struggle between integrity and despair, including mourning. So, you know, people have regrets. So this woman had regrets for how things had gone with her marriage, things had gone with having not having children. So part of the coming to understanding and acceptance is going through a grief process, mourning for time forfeited and space depleted, autonomy weakened, initiative lost, generativity neglected, identity potentials bypassed, too limiting and identity lived. So those are some of the psychosocial crises from earlier in life. And just, you know, a side note, a life review does not have to include going through all of these issues. It can go, the life review can include just going through some of them or one of them. Um, so Robert Butler took Eric Erickson's developmental approach and he developed the idea of life review a little bit more fully. He suggested similar to Erickson that later life is a time for people to review their lives allowing a return to consciousness of past experiences, especially unresolved conflicts, which can bring serenity and wisdom and life review. And according to Butler, the life review goal is to reduce guilt, resolve internal conflicts, reconcile relationships and renew one's ideals. Um, Butler, you know, if we were going to spend a lot more time on life review and reminiscence, we would talk about the fact that Butler also says life review can bring obsessiveness, it can bring despair. So life review of this sort is not for everybody. It is really helpful for some clients, but it is not necessarily for everyone. So for someone that's very obsessive, or someone that has had just so much trauma and is not got a lot of internal ego strength, it might not be a good idea. Or someone with um, dementia, it's, it's probably not a good idea, but it is really helpful for some clients. 
James Biren also took the point, the concept of life review and talked about life review to develop an acceptable image and leave behind an acceptable legacy. One of you mentioned legacy in the chat a little while ago. So he would say that the awareness of coming death can stimulate a person to review one's life, to integrate the actuality of his life with what has been, reorganize attitudes and to leave a legacy. So that is another, can be another piece of a life review. So life review or reminiscence therapy, those words get used not exactly interchangeably, but are two kind of um, caveats on the same kind of thing. But, but using this as a therapy approach, it is a structured activity to access and process thoughts about past experiences. People can do this in groups or individually. Um, may include writing assignments, having the client write things down. It might include you as the clinician writing things down. And there's kind of two basic types. There's many really of the, of the liter in the literature on life review and reminiscence, there's many different approaches, but they all kind of come around reviewing a life and they kind of fall into two main categories. And I think it's important to distinguish the two because I think um, they can be good for different kinds of clients. So integrative reminiscence refers to the reappraisal of losses, shortcomings, difficulties, reviewing values and personal meaning. So the kind that I was just describing from Butler and Erickson. A, a second type of life review has, or reminiscence therapy has been developed called instrumental reminiscence, which refers really to recalling problem solving positive ad adaptation, strengths, successes, and reactivating positive self-concepts. So really sticking with the positive. So some people, some clinicians and some clients are gonna be better suited to one or the other. Um, and, you know, I, I, some of it might be intuitive, but also just to, in my experience, people that have had a lot of, um, people that have currently reduced cognitive ability or really reduced um, ego strength or the ability to process losses probably would do better with the second kind, instrumental. People that are still able to process losses to get through the grief and come to acceptance, I think can be really helped with integrative reminiscence. I'm gonna pause just to see if there's any questions about that concept that I'm just saying. Christine, are there any questions so far about reminiscence and life review? No questions, but a few comments. Um, okay. Earlier, before you really dove into the life review, um, someone had commented that it is so challenging um, that uh, such review often results in despair that uh, clients mm -hmm. struggle to accept. Um, yeah. and, then, and someone else mentioned that the life review reminds them of the fourth step in 12-step programs, okay. taking an inventory. It's different, yeah. similar. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So the, 
Right. So that is interesting to compare with the 12th step, fourth, fourth 12th step. Um, in terms of contributing to despair, I have found if I think a good uh, integrative reminiscence could be helpful, I might try it in a, a sort of a light way and see, like try processing a loss, a trauma, a difficulty from the past with a client and see how it goes. You know, try that for a week or two, a, a session or two and see how it goes. If it really dips a person into a deep depression or obsessiveness that can't be resolved and processed, you know, some down mood is gonna happen when you process past losses and regrets. But if someone can get through it, then I think we can keep going. But if they get stuck and after a couple sessions, we can't help them process it and work it through, then maybe maybe it's not, that person is not a good candidate for that kind of, of work. There's another comment that uh -huh. someone made that it's difficult or the life review is difficult to do with some clients who experience delusions. Yeah, I, I probably wouldn't recommend it for some, well, it's, I wouldn't say you can't do it with someone with delusions, but that wouldn't be my first thought of a, of a client to work this way with. Um, the talk I'm going to give in two weeks, not next week, but the week after, we're going to kind of talk about some issues, how to, how to work with someone who's delusional. And I don't want to say you shouldn't ever do life review with someone like that, but I, yeah, I probably wouldn't think about that first off. So here are, is how one might go about an, um, doing a, a life review. One would be to, to take a piece of paper I'm sure you could do this on the computer, um, especially if you know how to make a line across the page on on it on a computer. Like I'm just thinking, if you're doing Zoom work with someone, you know, you could share your screen and do this on 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 the computer. Um, so either on paper or on the computer, you would draw a line across, horizontal line across, and you would mark on the line the the, the year, like, um, well, for our older adults at this point, they're all in the 19, <laughs> 1950s, 1960s, 1940s, 1930s, yeah. Um, the year that they were born, and then you would mark on the line the year that we're at, 2022, and then in between, and you draw a long line, and um, in between, you would mark like the age they started school or the age one of their siblings was born or the age they went to high school or the age they you know, finished school or the age they, if they went on to college or they got married or they had children or different ages. You ask the person some questions and I'll show you the questions. You ask the person to recall important personal events, educational, family, work, accomplishment, loves, losses, hopes, regrets, pleasures, Etc. And you mark the year and their age on the paper. And you can put in important world events that kind of helps people to remember, you know, 9-11 um, or World War II or um, the civil rights movement or put different important world events. And you put the years on the, on the line. 
And you can do use all kinds of, of associated things to help re remind people, help evoke memories. Um, photos, picture books, letters, diaries, scrapbooks, mementos, music. You can play them music. Like if they grew up in a different country, you might find some music of that country to evoke earlier memories, foods, smells, texture. You might bring in some food to a session or certain smells, um, different senses. And you, trace, you can trace the client's experience based on a theme. If you wanna choose a theme, um, one life review I did with a client, I did kind of the main life events first, but then pets kept showing up. So then I went back and started another, another row underneath the line about pets. And we talked about pets and that brought up more memories. And as we talk about these issues, we talk about, as she, the client brings up memories of what happened, we process the memory. And if we're doing, just to go back to the, wait, this one, if we're doing an integrative reminiscence, we might, we would process some of the regrets, the losses, the difficulties. If we're doing an instrumental reminiscence, I'm going to really focus my kind of interventions on noting the positive, the, the, the strengths. Um, so there are different ways to do this. You could do it in a, in a family systems kind of a way. Um, and one of the things writing an autobiography that I think is could be really helpful is you could ask them to write if they are able to write their memories, or you could write it down for them and then give it to them. And I have seen that done where the clinician was writing it down while they were going through the life review, not just a drawing the picture of the, of the timeline, but actually writing like an outline or even in prose, what the person's life was like, and then give it to the client. And that has been a really beautiful gift of the clinician to the client. Um, and I've seen that be extremely meaningful to, a, to a clients. So these slides have some of the questions that one can ask. Um, this is just a possible set of questions. A book that's in my references at the end of the PowerPoint, but um, has a lot of questions in it that you could refer to as Barbara Hate's Life Review Book, H-A-I-G-H-T is her last name. And she wrote it with her husband, whose also last name is Hate. So it's Hate and Hate, H-A-I-G-H-T. Life Review is a really fine book for um, finding questions. There are lots of other ways to find questions too on this subject. But here are some of the questions that one can ask. What is the first thing you remember in life? Who were the important people when you were a child? What losses did you experience? When did you think of yourself? When you think of yourself as a teenager, what's the first thing you remember? What were the pleasant things about adolescence? What important events occurred in your life as a younger adult? Tell me about your work. Um, what were some of the main difficulties you experienced during young adult, during adult years? 
What losses have you experienced as an older adult? How have you coped? What have you gained? How would you evaluate your life? If you're going to live your life over again, what would you leave, change or leave unchanged? So these are possible questions. So um, we're gonna do a little exercise. So the instructions are, you're gonna have about seven minutes to one of you be the counselor, one of you be a client. You can either role play, just be yourself or role play a client you know. And the counselor will draw a timeline and mark down the birth year and then focus on successes. Ask about happy memories and successes. Then Christina will tell you to switch roles after about seven minutes. And then um, I want you to switch roles and then the counselor can ask about losses and unresolved events or regrets. So I want you to try an, it, try an instrumental reminiscence for the first half and then an integrative reminiscence for the second half. You share anything about your experience in the chat. Um, for those of you that tried on one of them to go with the more positive reminiscence and one of them to go through the more working through regrets. Did you notice a difference between trying to do it one way or the other? Um, any other comments or what was the experience like for you um, either as the client or as the therapist? Maybe especially what was it like for you as a client to, to go through those some of those questions? Someone noticed that they wanted to tread lightly when asking about losses. Yeah, yeah. And of course, um, you just, you know, especially, I mean, most of you don't know each other, I, I'm guessing. And just to jump in, in in five minutes and ask somebody about their regrets, it's um, not what you would do in real therapy, of course. But I think that's a good point because I think even when as therapists with our clients, we sometimes are hesitant to ask about the hard stuff because it is painful. You know, I mean, I know, you know, we don't want to make the other person cry. We don't want to make the other person sad. Um, and while that's obviously an empathic feeling on our part as therapists, you know, to really work through losses, we sometimes do have to probe about the difficult stuff, but you would lead into it a lot more slowly in an actual therapy session. Someone else commented that it was good to hear themselves say certain things about what they remember from their childhood. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Just to kind of remember some things maybe you hadn't thought of or anything else there? Someone else commented that it was nice to talk about challenges they overcame when they were younger and mm -hmm. it reminded them of their resilience. Yeah, okay. So that's a nice outcome of, of something like this. Um, and again, this is just a little, you know, five minute experiment. Another way to use life review and reminiscence therapy is, um, described in a book called Finishing Well, Aging and Reparation in the in Intergenerational Family. So 
Hargrave and Anderson have a really lovely book that describes how you might do a family review, a, a life review of an older adult within a family system. And I think this, where this is an option, where somebody is aging and is elderly and there are kind of some hurt relationships within the family, one could use this approach of asking the older adult questions within, with the family present, you know, having the whole family together. And it gives an opportunity to work through some issues between the older relative, the mom, the dad, and the children or other family members. And it, it, it can be a family, turn into a family therapy that can be very healing for the older person, as well as for the younger people. So I think that is a really, can be a really nice, for some clients can be a really nice intervention. Um, all right, so I'm gonna switch gears to kind of talk about transcendence. And it, it, the word transcendence is a little bit, um, a little bit hard to describe, but within the aging literature, the geropsychology literature, there's some discussion about whether with aging, people naturally turn to increased emphasis on internal processes. And there's debate about whether it's natural, whether it's healthy, whether it's the right thing. But it's definitely true that for some people who are aging and also some people who are not aging, oh, well, we're all aging, but some people who are older and some people who are younger adults, the experience of transcending current circumstances is an important concept. And I think it's really relevant to, for some of our clients. So within aging, there may be an increased emphasis on internal processes or in, inner experiences, which facilitate expanding consciousness. Older adults may have more time to meditate, contemplate, reflect, Life satisfaction may increase as a person shifts towards increased focus on the cosmic world rather than the material world. So this is the idea that we can help through um, certain kinds of practices like mindfulness or contemplation. We may be able to help our mind, mindfulness, meditation, contemplation, help our client develop internal life satisfaction separate from the external circumstances. So the concept of transcendence is the ability to move beyond the immediate circumstances, like what um, Viktor Frankl said. Transcendence would be um, connecting beyond the self, transcending the gulf between people or between the person and the universe or between the person and the creator of the universe. So transcendence might be religious or spiritual, including a higher power, a, a divine being, or it might not. It might um, be separate from uh, the idea of a belief in any kind of a divine being. Um, different writers talk about gero, Lars Tornstem talks about gero transcendence as cosmic communion with the spirit of the universe. Again, that might be 
spirit with a capital S like a God figure, or it might not be. It might be just more the general spirit of the universe. Ram Das talks about aging provides the greatest opportunity to develop inner wisdom, compassion, spiritual insight and balance. Um, Ram Das, you know, I don't know, some of you have probably heard about him or read about him, but he, he um, has a spiritual perspective, it's probably a combination of Hindu and Buddhist kind of perspective, but he had um, a, a major stroke um, and he was able to talk through mindfulness and meditation, really come to perceiving illness as a blessing rather than a misfortune. He talks about having the stroke as heavy grace. The stroke was unbearable to the ego. And so it pushed me into the soul level also, and that's grace. So this is a concept that I think some of our clients are able to grasp onto and we can help them to see illness, misfortune as not necessarily being a horrible thing, but actually being something that helps a person turn away from the material world and from the self into um, what some people will experience as the soul or spirit. And I think mindfulness practices can help here. So really, I think most of our clients can learn some mindfulness approaches, some a little bit and some more than a little bit. Uh, mindfulness is you know, very commonly talked about nowadays um, in the mental health world. And I think it's been very, very helpful to clients. I try to incorporate it with actually most of my clients to some extent. One approach to follow for mindfulness practices, if you're looking for kind of guidance would be acceptance commitment therapy. Another approach to implementing mindfulness with clients would be John Kabat-Zinn's mindfulness-based stress reduction program. It's got a lot of research in terms of helping people with all kinds of, of mental health problems and issues. So here's an example of naturally developing mindfulness. An 86 year old woman once recounted to me how severe arthritis brought her kicking and screaming into the domain of her own soul. One, she says, one morning I was sitting at my kitchen table staring into space. It was one of those windy days when the sun keeps coming out and going in. All of a sudden, a sunbeam crossed my kitchen table and lit up my crystal salt shaker. There were all kinds of colors and sparkles. It was one of the most beautiful sights I'd ever seen. You know, I, that same, very same salt shaker had been on the kitchen table for over 50 years. Surely there must have been other mornings when the sun crossed the table like that but I was too busy getting things done. I wondered how much else I'd missed. This was it, this was grace. I needed crippled hands before I could sit still. Sometimes you have to be stopped right there in your tracks before you can see that all the beauty in life is right in front of you. And 
while it's Ram Das calls it heavy grace, I think that we can work with clients to help them see what is beautiful right in front of them, even amidst trials and hardships. Um, it's not easy and it's not for everyone, but I do think that that's, that is what I am encouraging us to think about how we can bring in helping people find some beauty. It, it's not like just telling them to look on the bright side of things, but bringing them into it, them into it gradually. So um, one way to maybe introduce a little bit of mindfulness for people would be to helping them just notice something in nature, just looking out the window at the tree in their yard or opening the window and listening for any birds that are making sounds. Or when we have clouds, looking at clouds and just watching the clouds, um, watching the birds flying around. A couple of you mentioned early on of taking care of something. And you know when someone is able to, gardening, and just caring for a plant. There's a, a study way back in the 70s, I think, by Langer and Rodin when they got plants for nursing home residents and they did a study, the clients that were given plants to take care of live longer than the clients that didn't have a plant. Just one plant to take care of can, can both expose a person to nature as well as taking care of something. Um, are there any comments, Christina? Um, yeah, there's a question. Someone asked, do we provide empathy and validation when clients talk about their losses or do we keep moving on with memories? Uh, provide empathy when they, when they bring up their losses. Yeah. Another yeah person, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Um, another person asked, can you elaborate on how to help clients in this way without coming across as invalidating or looking on the bright side? Kind of way. Yeah. Um, well, that that could be could be a long discussion, but in brief, I would work into it. So, if we're talking about um, kind of this this idea of trying to see the good in what was bad, I would go really, really slowly. So, I might. Um, I might introduce mindfulness first. I might introduce deep breathing and focus mindfulness of breath, maybe mindfulness of body, mindfulness of nature, and try to lead them in and try to help them actually experience feeling some sense of calm with their breath and watching to see that if they enjoy their breath, if they feel relaxed by having a deep breath, then I might comment on, it seems like you can find some calm right here in the midst of this situation that's troubling otherwise. I would try to help them have the experience and then label the experience rather than telling them to do it, to try to find it. So I leading them into it gradually, um, you can't just, it's not, it's different from cognitive behavioral therapy where we might be trying to help them reframe 
which is a little more abrupt and some people can do that, but a lot of people can't. I, I don't know if that's helpful. It could be a longer discussion. And someone commented that it would be ideal for them to practice mindfulness for themselves first. Right, yes. Another person commented that pets can create a lot of meaning and joy as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you for your comments. It's super helpful to you know, hear what you're thinking while, we're, while I'm talking. Um, so spirituality, religion, um, I want to start, I have a slide later on of, of a De LA County Department of Mental Health parameter on spirituality. So I want to just start by saying Los Angeles County Department of Mental Health has a great, I don't know, it's three, four, five pages of, of a parameter and the ref, the, there's a slide later that has the numbers on it. You can find on the DMH website about addressing spirituality with clients and the very appropriateness of it. Some of us, you know, especially maybe those of us that are a little older, we're trained that we don't bring up religion or spirituality in therapy, but that really leaves a huge piece out of, of people's lives out of the picture. And DMH is very much behind us, including spirituality and religion in therapy as appropriate, not as a place to propel our own ideas. But spirituality would be like a set of beliefs such as love, compassion, respect, existence, relationships, the universe, the sacred, um, extending beyond the physical and material state. Religion is often considered the practical expression of spirituality, the organizational organization, ritual, and practice of one's beliefs. So, you know, I think that rather than asking you the question, I'm just going to kind of keep talking about some thoughts about when is it appropriate? I mean, I, I think when is it appropriate for us to talk about spirituality or religion with a client? I think one obvious answer is when they bring it up. They bring it up, we, we would engage it. Um, I think it is also appropriate for us to bring it up ourselves in certain ways and at certain times because spirituality and or religion can be a strength and or it can be a conflict that needs to be worked through or could be helped by being worked through. So um, some of the ways that we might, again, in addition to responding when they bring up spirituality and religion, here are some of the ways we might it might be clinically appropriate for us to bring it up. One is to bring it up on our initial assessment so we understand what kind of religious and spiritual coping they have had, they have used, or they might want. Another would be assessing childhood and younger adult history of their, as part of our life review or just as part of our intake assessment or getting to know somebody is, what were their previous thoughts, feelings, experiences of God, religion, spirituality, the divine, um, different words could be used to find out if there were strengths that they'd like to go back to and or if there were, are conflicts that are concerning them currently. And, you know, there may or may not be. Um, and we might want to encourage previous positive spiritual religious coping. And we might want to help them process 
previous negative experiences if they are so wanting to at this point. But I think, especially when we're working with clients who have developing medical problems that are chronic, potentially terminal, many people are thinking about spirituality and religion. And sometimes they, I, I've had clients say, oh, I'm not allowed to talk about that in therapy. <laughs> and I'll go, well, well, yeah, you are allowed to talk about it. Um, it can be really important to talk about. There are times where we would wanna refer them out to their spiritual faith tradition to get, if they were looking for answers, but if you're gonna help them explore and figure out what they want to do now, I think it's very appropriate. Um, so there are a few little helps. There's something called the hope question that, that one could use, asking them about sources of hope, meaning, comfort, strength, love, peace, connection, asking them about organized religion, asking them about spiritual practices, and asking about how their spirituality and religion or lack of it affects end of life issues. Um, so this is a, a reference to the DMH parameters um, that I think are really, really helpful. So then I kind of want to bring up how do we address client concerns about dying or death. Um, as people age, it's very common when people kind of, their age gets to a certain point, like turning 60 or turning 65 or reaching the end of one's 50s, where people kind of have a shift, a sort of natural shift to thinking, not really thinking about death, to thinking about, oh, my life might be more than half over. I'm like on the, oh, maybe I've gone up the hill and now I'm going down the hill. They sometimes say downhill, but I, I don't really like that phrase. But um, also if someone, if and when someone's start, body starts to kind of decline, someone's been become aware that, oh, I don't have as much energy as I used to, or, oh, my, my mind isn't working as, as um, steadily as it used to, that people start realizing, oh, death is coming. And there's been a study of older adults that noted, that found that 90 some percent of older adults are thinking about dying and death but a very much smaller percentage of people, older adults will talk about it, but it is on the minds of most older adults. And I think it is our part of our job in therapy is to, to bring it up when it seems appropriate and deciding that is not always quite so easy. Um, were there, were there, I see the more, a few more things in the chat or is that anything relevant to what we're talking about? Uh, yeah, folks were uh, talking about uh, religion. Um, some folks have had good experiences, bad experiences. Um, for clients who are spiritual, they've had great success utilizing faith integration when appropriate. Um, another person found that most clients make more progress in their recovery 
who have spiritual religious beliefs and practice. Um, Another person thinks it's great to bring up spirituality and how it differentiates from religion. It's a way to connect to their subconscious. Um, Uh Someone else usually waits for clients to bring up religion or spirituality uh, when they bring it up as one of their coping skills. And then they encourage them to connect or reconnect more with that. Uh, clients that change religion that they practice growing up compared to changing when they're married or spouse or after life experiences, their practices seem to help them recover and accept um, support. Um, And then we have a question. Someone asks um, their client experiences, experiences spiritual delusions. So how do, how do they manage that? Yeah, that is a, a, When the spirituality becomes psychotic, well, we don't always know, but sometimes it's really quite obvious. Um, We probably don't want to encourage it. You know, if it's healthy and it seems, and this is where we do make some judgments, you know, we're not supposed to make judgments, but I don't think we can help making judgments. But that is one time we are making judgments. Are there expressions of spirituality harming themselves or others? You know, there's a lot of gray zone, a lot of area in between where it's, we shouldn't make too much judgment, but then there are times where their delusion is, their spiritual or religious delusion is telling them to do, hurt somebody or hurt themselves or things like that. So we wouldn't want to encourage that degree of spirituality, but I do think, and and I'll talk about this in two weeks, I do think we'd want to try to figure out what are they trying to say or what are they feeling underneath that spiritual delusion and verbalize that for them. Help them to understand like, wow, it sounds like you're really scared that God would think you should kill somebody or wow, it sounds like you're really um, angry that, that God allowed you to have a stroke or you know, trying to verbalize, not agree with the delusion, but verbalize what we think they might be feeling underneath it. That would be a thought. Someone else asked, can you share a little bit about what you have found to be helpful in supporting people coping with or making peace with some loss of autonomy, such as body ability decline or inability to live independently? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's kind of the subject of the whole talk here. Um, our, our culture, our society is so, so focused on independence um, and, and autonomy. You know, naturally, I know I like to control things. I want things the way I want them. But I think aging and losing autonomy, medical illnesses, other losses, I think part of it starts with grieving the loss of the autonomy, grieving, helping them express their feelings about the loss of being able to live independently, including the sadness, but including the anger, including any regrets that might of what they think they might've done badly or caused it, expressing kind of like the Kubler-Ross, all those different kinds of feelings she talked about. Um, and then helping them see, okay, well, what do you have control over? And then thinking of what Frankel said, we still, 
do have control over what some of what we think. And I don't know if we have control of our feelings, but we have some control of our feeling, our thoughts and what we focus on. And then probably I'd try to bring in some things like, are, do you have any spiritual coping practices? Do you have any um, internal enjoyments? What can we help you develop that you have control of? What can we help you, I help you with? Let's try some focusing on your breathing. Let's try to help you. You know, you can help someone learn how to enjoy their breathing. That doesn't work for someone that has a lot of lung issues. Like, you know, obviously like someone that's badly in, with COVID and is not being able to breathe well, that wouldn't work. But perhaps you can help them to find some joy in the feelings they have in their feet. I mean, it's, it's finding some appreciation in small things that they do have control over. And you don't wanna sound Pollyanna-ish, and that's why I think it, it takes a, a gradual working into the situation, not just trying to get them to embrace it. Um, yeah, I hope that's somewhat helpful. So talking about death, I don't know which is harder. I think talking about death is probably harder than talking about religion <laughs> um, and spiritual. And so anyway, but as I was saying, the majority of older adults are thinking about it. And a lot of people are scared about death and dying. So I think like moving into losing autonomy or physical illness that one can help someone move into appreciating more internal things. Um, death can bring uh, some realizations to people that, oh, I don't have that much time left, or I only have a certain amount of time left. What, what is important to me? And I think this is a time to really bring up values. Like what is really important to the client? Is it earning more money to have something material or some physical circumstance? Or is it being kind to people? Or is it being kind to myself? I had a client say to me yesterday, she's got cancer. And she's got all these things she thinks she ought to be doing. And she said, well, maybe the most important thing for me is to learn to be self-compassionate, learn to love myself. And I thought, wow, yeah, that maybe that is the most important thing for her is to learn to love herself and to work through some of her tendency to try to please everybody else. So for some people, we can help them take the realization that their body is declining or that life is ending and see what, what are some important life values that they already hold important and remind them of that and help them to really focus on those values. Irvin Yalom writes a lot about existential psychology. He wrote this book called Staring at the Sun which I highly recommend. I think it's a really good discussion about how to talk, why and how to talk about death directly with clients. Um, so, you know, another question I could ask, I'm not sure if we have time, but if anybody wants to put in like, 
when would we bring up talking about death? I think I'll just keep going, but if, if anyone wants to say anything about that, but obviously if someone brings up fear of dying, we address it with them. But when do we bring it up? So I think we need to think clinically, do we think their fear of dying, their fear of what might be the mystery of what happens after death might be part of their mental illness or emotional distress. Yalom would say it's true for everybody. He would say the fear of death, the fear of what happens may or may not happen after death is part of everybody's mental health concerns. And he is a complete atheist. So he does not have a religious bone to pick. <laughs> but he feels like this is part of everyone's concern. And it is interesting. I will in therapy when someone's talking about their anxiety or maybe their depression, but their anxiety, that they're afraid they'll go out and something bad will happen. And I ask them, what is it? Well, I'm afraid I'll get sick. And then I say, okay, well, what if you got sick? And I'm afraid I'll die. And then I'll probe that. But often fear of dying is behind a lot of people's anxieties and depressions. And if we try to understand what it is that they're afraid of about dying, I think we can help them work through some of their, their issues. Um, Yalom says that everyone has a death anxiety. It waxes and wanes throughout life. Confronting death can lead to an awakening to life. Aids to dealing with death anxiety can be facing the fear of death. Well, what is it that you're afraid of about dying? A lot of times it's pain or what happens in the afterlife or leaving people behind, um, but working through some of those feelings. Another aid is rippling, which is like leaving a legacy. Yalom talks about helping people realize that their life has had meaning even when they think it hasn't. And one of the ways rippling is um, to help a, a person see how has your life affected other people? And some people will say, well, I didn't do anything with my life. You know, I didn't, wasn't a famous actor. I didn't write a book. I didn't save the world. I didn't, wasn't a good mother. I wasn't a good father. But were you, did you share a cigarette with the other homeless person down the street? Did you help someone when they were crying? Um, did you help save someone's life when they overdosed? You know, I don't know, things that some of our clients have done. And how did you helping that person help other people? Or how did you surviving your trauma show other people that trauma can be survived? Or are there are ways in which we can help them talk about how their life has affected other people and then hypothesize, how did those people's lives affect other people? I mean, the idea of ripples, like throwing a stone into a lake. Um, helping them become who they truly are in whatever circumstance they're in. Helping them to find things they're grateful for. Again, you can't be too Pollyanna-ish about the gratitude, but that can be helpful. And connecting with other humans. So these are some of Yalom's ideas about how to help. Um, okay. 
I want to, I, I don't know, I'll come back to some of the slides if we have time. Um, but I, I want to get to wisdom because it's kind of related to helping pull out values, meaning <clears throat> rippling. Um, wisdom is something that we can really help our clients, our older adult clients, really, I think almost with any life that they have lived, but help them to see how their experiences, their knowledge, the ways they have confronted circumstances, tolerated difficulties, how these things have led to things they have learned. So people can be encouraged to honor the wisdom that they have developed from their li the life, their life experience. So there's an extra few letters there. Um, some of them can be encouraged to share their wisdom. Some of them are just not in a situation where they're gonna share it, but perhaps they can share it with you. Perhaps you can write it down and give it to them. But, but even more than if they, even if they can't share it, they can honor the wisdom that they have developed, the ways they have survived, the things they have learned about how to survive. And I think helping our clients really honor our older adult clients honor the knowledge, experience, and wisdom that they have they have developed can really help them to see some of their, their value. Um, just some other ideas of ways to help them develop meaning. Certainly creativity. Um, this is just a small list of potential creative endeavors. Some of our clients can be actively involved in creativity, you know, drawing, painting, singing, playing instruments, writing, dancing. Some of them though we won't be able to, and we can really help them listen to or look at art. So listening to music, some client, uh, you know, I've had clients where they loved music, they were very involved in music, but they can't do their music anymore, but they can listen and we can help them find ways to get music going. Or they may want to view art, even if they can't still make art. We can bring, you know, show them on our computer art. We can explore museums on our computer with them. You know, there's a lot of virtual touring of museums these days. We can bring them picture books from the library and help them make art if we, if they are so able. I wanted to make, bring up this um, pleasant event schedule. A lot of times when we ask clients, well, what did you used to enjoy? and they will not remember. Or you ask them, well, what, what do you like to do? And they won't remember. I highly recommend these three different versions of the pleasant event schedule. This one is a 320 item. It was the first pleasant event schedule developed. You can get it on the internet. It should be, um, it's in the public domain, it's free. You can just go over these 320 things and ask them, do you, did you used to like to do this? Do you think you would like to do this? 
And you can just go over this whole list and find one or two, or out of 320, you're probably gonna find more than one or two things that they like to do that they still can do. So I, I really think this is a helpful. There's two other versions. This is a 66 item version that was developed for older adults specifically. And then for per persons with dementia, there's an even more simple version that has been developed that is um, available. So I, I think those are tools that we can use. I wanna make sure I talk about relationships. I think you would automatically think one of our prime goals with all our clients is to try to help them have enhanced community and deeper relationships. And part of the reason I start with, I, I leave this till later is just because it's just not available for some of our clients. And I think it's a little more obvious that we would have already thought about it. But I wanted to um, read a little vignette. Sometimes we talk, thinking about what is some of the grace in aging? What is some of the good that we can find even in frailty? And, and here's a, a little example in a relationship format. Physical therapist tells how a stroke led to the reconciliation of a father and a son who had not spoken in years. My patient was a large man and the dead weight of his stroke made it impossible for his tiny wife to move him at all. His son agreed to come over and learn how to do a wheelchair transfer, but he came in looking so hostile, I wanted to call the whole thing off. He didn't even say hello. I explained that he had to grip his father in a bear hug, then use a rocking motion to pivot him from the bed to the wheelchair. The son went over to the bed where his father was sitting and put his arms around him, just like I said. He got the rocking motion going, but then all of a sudden I realized that both of them were crying. It was the most amazing thing. They stayed like that for a long time, rocking and crying. This son was moved to linger in his father's arms for the first time since boyhood. Unexpected embraces, uncharacteristic expressions of feeling, these are only some of the ways that relationships can grow through frailty's demands. And I find, I find this vignette very moving every time I read it. And I just think it illustrates we think strokes are terrible things and they're not good things. They're not, not good. But I do think we can find some grace, some um, love in interdependence, in the, need, in the need for other people. And I think we can sort of try to highlight that for clients. We can't make them see it but we can, I think, call attention to it when we do notice it with clients. Christina, any comments on this part? Um, we had a few questions coming in earlier. Someone asked about how to address older adults losing friends and family as they age too. Some get obsessed, depressed with death happening around them. Another person asked about a client saying that they're a burden to their family and how to help them process mm -hmm. things like this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, losing friends and family. It's grief, a grief process, I think. Um, and learning how to be a friend to oneself. Learning how also to um, value the internalized memories and experiences they have of the people who have died or gone away. Um, you know, I, I, one of the things I, I learned this from Robert Niemeyer's work is when we lose somebody, they're physically gone, but we have an internalized sense of them. So while we miss having them physically present and verbally conversational, we can have a relationship with them, with the them the, that they we still have in our heart of them, and helping people to value and interact with their internalized sense of those people that are that are missing. Someone um, made a comment about relationships as well that a lot of their older clients want romantic relationships. And they provide an example that men verbally state they want a woman, whereas some women are delusional about having a husband that does not exist. Yeah, yeah, that's a big question too. Um, I think it probably goes again to grieving what for what they haven't don't have right now. Um, seeing, you know, if there is anything they can do to be in situations or computer date or you know if they are in a situation to be able to look for a partner and if not you know to really grieve for that and and also try to identify what it is they want from that is it sexuality is it verbal emotional intimacy is it affection you know trying to find out what it is that they're missing more specifically is it affirmation and mourn for it and then see if there's any way to satisfy the desire in another way whether it's personal sexuality whether it's um developing other friendships whether it's finding intimacy with the people that are in their lives you know different things but some of it is grief work all right, I want to just talk about a few, a few differences that might show up in different cultural groups. I don't want to stereotype, but I just want to call out some things that may be specifically meaningful for some of these um, ethnic groups. So among Latino elders, family relationships, Latino, Latina, Latin, Latinx family relationships may be particularly important meaning may be derived from reconnecting estranged family relationships, improving connection, communication within the family and or mourning for unmet expectations. I've seen a lot of older Latina and Latino older adults who feel badly about how they were mothers or dads. And some of that is a grief process. And sometimes we can help them reconnect with estranged relationships. Religious and spiritual issues may be very important for Latino, Latina elders, and they may have conflicts they might benefit from working through um, between their religion and how their life kind of worked out. Among African-American elders, 
relationships with the family, including extended family and fictive kin, may be highly important. Facilitating improved or reconnected relationships may bring increased meaning or mourning for what's been lost in relationships. Religion may be very important and encouraging religious readings, listening to religious programs, prayer may increase satisfaction. And we may be able to help, if they want it, facilitate reconnection to church relationships. Among Asians and Asian American elders, filial piety and family relationships may be seen as actually more important than themselves. And I know myself, I have sometimes had to struggle with my own conflict between thinking self-development of my client is more important than the client self-sacrificing for their family. But among some families and some elders, it may be more important to sacrifice something from themselves in the, for the benefit of their, their younger generation. And you know, we kind of have to work through some cultural differences there for me anyway, that has been. Personal meaning may be intricately tied with family, helping them reconnect, decrease conflict or mourn for what's been lost. And I have found that among Asian culture, exploring feelings about death may take particular sensitivity because talking about death may be seen as making it happen. So treading kind of lightly there, not, not avoiding it, but going kind of slow. And with Native American elders, spirituality may be of great importance. And it's important to know that they may hold mixed spiritual perspectives concurrently, not just kind of one or another. I think we'll wrap up here. All right. Is there anything else then? Uh, there was a question someone asked, is, is there ever a proper space to bring up last will and testament? Um, yeah, I think so. I think, you know, if a person if you're talking about some of their concerns about dying or death and um, you have a sense that they, if that's their, if they, if you have a sense that they have a concern about not having finalized, I don't think we should tell them they have to do it. You know, people die without having a will, but if, if it seems to be of concern with them, I would bring ask them if it's of concern to them and do they want to talk about it. Obviously, we don't want to get into any position where we're influencing them on their will. Um, but if we want to help get them the, the resources so that they can write out a will, that would be, I think that would could be appropriate. There was an earlier question as well. Someone asked um, about how to help their clients process um, feelings about being a burden to their family. Yeah. Hmm. Well, if we think, if we have reason to think that their family is not feeling that way, we might say, well, do you want me to talk to your daughter? You want me to talk to your son? And then if you talk to the son or daughter and they say, no, I'm glad to help mom, then you could um, 
facilitate a, a conjoint session and, and try to talk with them, the, the family. If you think the family members do think they're a burden, then one thing is you could help them think through, well, what are your choices? Do you want to live in a assisted living or a boarding care rather than with them? Do you want to make some changes or explore the feelings? Are they feeling like they're a burden because actually their mom or dad was a burden to them, but they're actually, you know, doing the best they can. Um, so I, I think potentially you can do some family sessions, but potentially it might be more of exploring what are their options. And, you know, it too, it could come to, well, Maybe, you know, it is hard, but maybe you're, you know, the child, the family has a choice. You could try to help them see that the family has a choice about whether or not they're caring for their elder. So in a, in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah, this person also commented that, that that is the underlying fear of death. I'd be happy to see all, well, I didn't get to uh, see your names, <laughs> see your Zoom, Zoom boxes. Next week, we'll be talking about cognitive impairment and then and mental health services. And then in um, two weeks, we'll be talking about um, working with older adults with psychotic symptoms and disorders. So um, feel free to come back and hear some more in, in next week.